Welcome to Saturday Night at the Movies, the podcast that celebrates classic, cult, and current films, and the people that made them, and many other aspects of pop culture. I'm your host, Steve Rubin. Our producer is Ben Shrewsbury, and our signature theme was composed by Greg Lerhoff. Here it's always Saturday night, and our mission is to chronicle film and pop cultural history one memory at a time. Tonight, we celebrate the 80th anniversary of an iconic film of 1944, MGM's 30 Seconds Over Tokyo. And to help us place this film in historical context is screenwriter Steve Bonds, who is one of the world's leading authorities on the raid itself, its place in history, and the legacy of the original raiders. Steve is also a working film historian in Hollywood who has a fabulous collection of vintage automobiles which he regularly supplies to film and TV productions. And for many years, he maintained, preserved, and repaired vintage Hollywood props. Welcome, Steve. Hey, Steve. It's good to be with you. I feel like I'm in the presence of history. Well, um, I, I do more to preserve history than make it, I think. <laughs> well, I have to ask you from the top... Um, when you were a little boy, were you as obsessed with film as I was? I would have to say yes. Um, I knew from right around the third grade that uh, I wanted to work in Hollywood. Uh, and if not be a filmmaker, at least be a participant. At, at that age, um, I thought I wanted to be a cameraman because I figured the guy with the camera must be in charge. Was it a certain film or films that uh, kind of grabbed you from the beginning and got you thinking in that direction? It wasn't exactly uh, a certain film, but my older sisters uh, would get together with their school friends and make movies. We made, well, they made uh, little comedies, and I just enjoyed seeing how the audience reacted to the movies that they had made, although a lot of the reaction was because they knew the people in the movies. But I'd have to say, in terms of uh, films that really inspired me, A Night to Remember would probably be toward the top of the list. Oh, it's interesting that you should mention that, because I've always been fascinated with that film, particularly... The fact that it mentions the uh, the was it a merchant ship, the California that was anchored only a few miles from the Titanic. Californian with an N on the end. The Californian. And yes. There, there's some controversy. Obviously, some of it generated by the descendants of the captain and those who came to the uh, support of the captain saying that what Titanic was seeing was a reflection and not the actual ship. And we may never know exactly where it was, but wherever it was, it should have seen the rockets that were fired from Titanic because they made a note of it on the Californian that rockets were being fired. And I think, as I recall from a night to remember, they thought there was celebratory. They thought they could have been uh, company signals uh, of some sort or perhaps warning other ships about the ice, but they had not considered them to be distress signals. Right. And the fact is, in those days, uh, uh, 
operators were not required to man the wireless 24-7, correct? Correct. So they only had a single wireless operator on the Californian, and he was not on duty at the time. It's an amazing story. Uh, it's funny because I got a copy of the, uh, the the DVD recently, but it's uh, a British version, which I can't play on my regular player. So I got to figure that one out. What, um, well, what if was the... If um, of any help, oh. uh, I just found a DVD player that uh, plays all formats. And oh. it was $30. Oh, then I have to pick up one of those. Absolutely. Um, in school, did you study film at all? I did. Uh, I actually started making my own films right about the same time my sister were making movies. And interestingly, my first film was my own third grade version of The Sinking of the Titanic. <laughs> film, no doubt, in your bathtub. In my bathtub, using a model of the Mauritania, which I at the time thought was just as good as the Titanic, but of course now I know all the differences. <laughs> uh, I did, I did go to uh, USC Film School and graduated with uh, both a bachelor's and master's in uh, cinema. When did you first start get, getting interested in the Doolittle Raiders? I was contemplating that earlier today and i believe that it goes back to high school i remember hanging around with history geeks at the time and the doolittle raid was considered this very cool thing that had happened and it always had sort of a magical sound uh to me when i heard the doolittle raid I, and i started getting this curiosity about it and i found a paperback. I think it must have been my dad's, but it was a paperback called The Doolittle Raid. And uh, it's I still have it. it it's a, extremely tattered, but um, just got fascinated by it. And then um, years later, I decided to start going to the Doolittle Raider reunions. Yes, exactly. I know exactly what uh i mean i wanted i wanted to learn more about it. in fact i wanted to do a documentary at one time with you on one of the reunions unfortunately we couldn't get it going but no i equally i mean in in studying world war ii history you have to study the doolittle raid because it was one of the most daring events of the war i'm going to put up a picture of jimmy just right now it's for context here um Tell us a little bit about Jimmy Doolittle. Um, in your research, what kind of a man was he? I never did meet Jimmy Doolittle. Uh, I met his son, John, and I kind of got the feeling that his son, John, was a similar sort of character to Jimmy. He was very soft spoken, uh, not at all. Uh, the kind of person that you would expect, uh, personality you would expect from a general, although very determined, intelligent, and he was nicknamed by those around him the master of the calculated risk. And although he didn't make a big deal about it, he could look at the deck of that carrier and do the calculations in his head and know that he was going to get the plane off. And it was 
basically uh, his determination that made the raid actually happen. So I really never met him, but everything I've heard about him is that he was just cool, confident, and uh, not the kind of, certainly not a Patton kind of a character at all. Not brash. Um, let's set a little, for the list, for the viewers actually, who have not heard the details of the raid, uh, especially the younger viewers, uh, tell us a little bit about the motivation for launching a raid of this kind. Well, as most people know, on December 7th, 1941, Pearl Harbor was attacked uh, by the um, Imperial Japanese Navy, led by Admiral Yamamoto. And it was meant to be a knockout punch to basically take our Navy out of play for uh, as long as possible. And uh, our carriers were not in Pearl Harbor. They thought that our carriers were going to be there. So they struck thinking they were going to wipe out the carriers as well as the battle fleet. But they didn't get any of those. And a few, maybe two, three weeks later, Roosevelt had a meeting of the Joint Chiefs and he said, I want a mission to hit the heart of Japan as soon as possible because we needed both for the home morale and to let the Japanese know we can get you. And just as a side note, uh, my mother's cousin, Mac, was killed on the Oklahoma on December 7th in oh. Pearl Harbor. Oh, wow. Was there? I know that part of the problem with fighting uh, the Japanese was the great distances in the Pacific and the fact that by April 1942, they had basically overrun the Pacific. Was there any um, was there any thought that they could launch the raid from land bases in either Russia or uh, China? They all of those things were talked about, but uh, the problem was that Russia had a non-aggression pact with the Japanese oh. and they didn't want any involvement with any kind of an attack on Japanese soil because they didn't want to open a two-front war since they were already in a war with Germany at the time. Right. The, the Chinese, I, I can't say with any degree of authority if it was ever considered that they could get planes to China and then launch a raid against Japan. I know that the intention was to land the planes in China and that they had initially approached Russia and said, we can bring these planes to you saying that it's a Lend-Lease operation. But the Russians didn't want the Lend-Lease operation to be prefaced by a bombing raid. Got it. Got it. Uh, I'm going to put up another picture now. I'm going to put up a picture of the planes. Um this raid was launched from the carrier deck of the Hornet using B-25s. Any particular reason uh, that this plane was chosen as the attack bomber? Several bombers were studied. Uh, Doolittle himself considered uh, three or four planes for the mission. Ultimately, they decided on the B-25 because of the size. It allowed them to put 16 bombers on the deck 
Some of the other bombers had a longer wingspan and it would have cut down the number of bombers that they'd be able to use. And it, it all came down to a matter of the capability of how much distance a, a plane could fly on a tank of gas, even though the planes had their gas capacity increased as much as humanly possible in order to do the raid. It just came down to the B-25 as being the ideal choice, even though B-25s had not seen battle yet. What's what's amazing, I think this is presented in the movie, 30 Seconds Over Tokyo, but um, all the planes were always on the deck, weren't they, Steve? They didn't uh, store them below decks. Is that true? That's true. There was no way to put them below deck. Right. So you got these 16 bombers crammed on a deck. And of course, the whole issue is whether they could get up enough speed to actually take off from the deck. And that, uh, that is a great sequence in the movie where they show the, the men training on taking off in 500 feet. Um, that must have been an incredible um, issue for the for the pilots. Well, they had secretly tried it uh, on the Atlantic with pilots that were not involved in the uh, raid ultimately, but they had successfully gotten the planes off of a carrier deck already. So they knew that it could be done, but they wanted to train the men so that it could be done as efficiently as possible with as much certainty as possible. Knowing that, and they trained with a carrier pilot, so that they had an idea of how to take off from a carrier, even though they didn't know that's what they were doing. They were just training with the idea that it was going to be a very short takeoff. And the, um, oh, uh, I lost my train of thought there for a second. I mean, a short oh. distance to, to send a bomber, I think I read somewhere that... Um... To, to do a proper takeoff, they got to travel about 90 miles an hour. I guess that's part of the reason that the planes revved up their engines to heavy before they even moved, right? Right. And they also knew, this is where I was going before, uh, they knew that it was typhoon season and that they could get a pretty strong wind over the deck and that the forward motion of the plane, in addition to the wind coming across the deck, would give them enough lift to get off of the deck, which when you see the actual films of the planes taking off on April 18th, they look like they're barely moving and they just lift right off. Wow, that's crazy. Absolutely crazy. Um, what can you tell us? Now, the movie 30 Seconds Over Tokyo was based on a book written by Ted Lawson, the character played by Van Johnson. What do we know about Ted Lawson? Ted Lawson was one of the um, pilots who came in from the West Coast. I believe he was in the 17th Bomber Group, and they were on sub submarine patrols on the West Coast. And they got transferred to Columbia, South Carolina, ostensibly to do submarine patrols on the Atlantic Coast. But they were trying to concentrate the... Uh, few B-25s that they had on the East Coast to then go down to Eglin Air Base in Florida for the training. 
And he, I think, had just gotten his wings within a year and a half or two years before uh, he volunteered for the mission. And these these pilots and crew on this, these bombers were all in their early 20s, right? Yes. Um, Dick Cole, who was uh, Jimmy Doolittle's co-pilot, was one of the older ones, and he was 26. I'm not sure exactly how old Lawson was at the time, but Thatcher, who was the engineer gunner on Lawson's plane, was 20. And the other thing about this, I think I read, I think that's talked about in the movie, too, that the normal B-25s are outfitted with several uh, uh, anti-plane uh, uh, you know, guns that would protect them, like B-17s, but they had to remove all the guns because of the weight. They did remove the lower turrets and the tail guns. They left the upper turret and uh, eventually replaced the tail guns with broomsticks so that any Japanese fighters that came up after them would think that they had tail guns and avoid the tail. They did have to cut down a lot of the weight. They even took out the radio sets, anything that they could take out and Pretty much anything that they took out got replaced by a gas can. So are you saying that the bombers took off from the Hornet without radio? There was a radio in Doolittle's plane uh, I for uh, to make sure that they could get the radio beacons uh, with the, on the ground in China. But they didn't have uh, radio communication that you would normally have. The the radios were taken out and you know i i have to say i am not brushed up on all of my Doolittle raid history at the moment to where i can just pull it out of my head when i wrote my screenplay about the raid it was 15 years ago at least but i do know that um they did have a homing sort of a receiver so that they could find the uh, the beacons in china which never arrived, by the way, because the plane carrying the, the beacons over the hump from India crashed. Oh, God, that's crazy. The Hornet uh, carried the bombers. Was there, was there a second carrier in that convoy? Yeah, uh, the Enterprise was, was in the convoy with carrier-based planes on it to fly cover if they needed it. Oh, so the, it was the Enterprise. Got it, got it. Yeah, the Hornet was a sitting duck, basically, with the bombers on deck. And if they got attacked, they had orders to uh, deep six the bombers. Now, as the story goes, um, everything was working really well until the uh, task force was spotted by Japanese merchant uh, vessels. I mean, fishing boats. They were picket boats. They were disguised as fishing boats, but they were actually Japanese picket boats which were out at a distance from land in case they could spot any naval activity that wasn't, they didn't have satellites. They didn't have uh, airplanes with the range to get out there. And so they were using these boats and the picket boat that spotted them was radioing back to the mainland that they had spotted a task force and uh, orders went out from Nimitz to sink the picket boats and all the destroyers and that they had with them, all the escort ships went out there and 
shot at the picket boats and they could not hit the darn thing. They finally sunk it, but the message had already gone out to uh, the mainland. Now, in one of the reports I read, I don't know if this is true, that the Japanese got the message from the pickets and they didn't believe it. Basically, they didn't really believe it. And they they didn't think that it would get to them since they thought that they were going to be carrier based planes. They figured they had a couple of days before the raid would come if there was to be a raid on the mainland because the picket boats were out beyond the range of carrier based planes. Got it. But they they weren't out beyond the range of B-25s. So because of the pickets discovering them, the planes took off much uh, further away from Tokyo than they planned from the Japanese islands. So that basically made fuel an issue, right? Absolutely made fuel an issue. They left uh, several hours before they were supposed to leave and uh, a couple hundred miles, basically 170, 200 miles out farther than they were supposed to be when they launched. And they knew when they were taking off that they weren't going to make it to China because they were on uh, a wing and a prayer anyway, making it to China. They were supposed to be going to Chongqing and without every drop of fuel, they weren't going to make it. But not a single, and they had the opportunity to drop out right up until the planes took off and not a single man dropped out. And there were alternate crews on the Hornet in case anything came up and they needed to replace a man. And the alternate crews were offering good money for guys to drop out so that they could take their place, even though they knew they weren't going to make it. Wow. So in in some parlance, it would be considered a suicide mission, but uh, through the good fortune, they most of the crews made it to China if if in uh, in aircraft that had to be ditched. Correct. Correct. Only only three men were killed on the night of the raid. Um, there were two who uh, drowned from plane number six when it went in uh, to the surf off of China and the rest of that crew was captured. And then um, there was one man who parachuted out and I don't think his parachute opened. How would you, so that was, how, how did the, uh, the military characterize the success of the raid? Well, it was not a very successful raid in terms of property damage. But the morale lift that it gave to the American people was worth the cost of losing 15 out of 16 planes. Ultimately, they did lose the 16th plane because it was interned by the Russians uh, in order for them to maintain their treaty with Japan. But uh, it lifted the spirits of the American public so much that it was a very worthwhile mission. And it caused the Japanese, even though they downplayed it as no damage, they called it the Doolittle did little raid. And it caused them to move up their timeline for attacking Midway, which of course was a disaster for them. 
Did you say that one of the planes ditched in Russia? It didn't ditch. It landed in Russia. How did they? Ha- how did they have the fuel to get there? They didn't. They were losing fuel. There, there are several theories about what happened. It's thought that somehow those carburetors were readjusted at a stopover um, before they were before they flew to Alameda, and Doolittle supposedly caught some of the airbase mechanics working on the planes and realized that they were readjusting the carburetors. They said we're all set too lean. And the way it was described is that Doolittle got up into the cockpit where these men were working and that the from the outside, it appeared as though the air in the cockpit turned blue from whatever Doolittle was saying to them. <laughs> but that that plane uh, was running very low on fuel after they did their bombing run and they decided to detour to Vladivostok and they have, they were under strict orders not to, to go to Russia under any circumstances, but they realized that that was a lot closer than making it to China. So they did do a detour. Interestingly, the pilot of that plane spoke fluent Polish. And there are those, including the navigator, Nolan Herndon, on that plane, who thought there was a possibility that they had secret orders to go to Russia. But there's nothing that's ever been proven about them having secret orders going to Russia. And the crew was interned in order for the Russians to maintain their treaty with Japan. Got it. Got it. And then they were they, did they come back to the States after the war? They actually uh, were interned by the Russians, and the Russians didn't really want to hold them because it was a whole crew of a plane that could be fighting the Germans. And uh, they transferred them down close to the border of Iran and put them at a work camp where they were farming. And the Russians looked the other way when the guys walked over the border into Iran, and Iran was... Uh, occupied by the Allies, and they were eventually repatriated and went back to the war effort. Doolittle obviously was uh, a hero from organizing this raid. I think he's a lieutenant colonel during the raid, and he was promoted quickly to Brigadier General, and he became a force in Europe, correct? Absolutely. Eighth Air Force, um, both in North Africa and in uh, Europe. He actually flew solo, I believe, in a P-38 over the landings on D-Day and was reporting back to Eisenhower. Wow. And if you can imagine the risk involved with one of our top generals and one of our most popular heroes of the war going over and flying over the D-Day landings solo, it was the man had incredible cool. So let's come to the movie. Uh, I remember 30 Seconds Over Tokyo being a mainstay on L.A. television back in the 60s. You'd you'd always catch it on a Saturday morning. Um, What are your memories of seeing the movie for the first time? 
you know, I don't have any memories of seeing the movie for the first time, quite frankly. Uh, it has become one of those movies where if I come across it while I'm channel surfing, then whatever time is left in the movie is shot because I'm going to watch the movie. But uh, I, I don't really recall the first time I saw it. I grew up in Cleveland and we didn't have as many movie channels, I guess, with Saturday morning movies. I, I don't know if I remember my first time, but it was certainly a movie. First of all, you have Spencer Tracy kind of in a supporting role playing Doolittle, um, which is, un, by the way, I, from what I've read, it was unusual for him at that time because he was a leading man and starred in movies. And yet uh, I think like a lot of actors in Hollywood at that time, they saw this as a very patriotic project. Uh but the lead actor is, of course, the very popular Van Johnson, who played Ted Lawson. And I've always thought he was the perfect actor to be, you know, to represent the everyman in the military. I mean, Van was good looking, charismatic. Uh, five years later, he would be in Battleground, uh, which is one of the great World War II movies about the Battle of the Bulge. Uh, and he was always playing good guy roles. I thought he did a terrific job as Lawson. What did you think? Oh, he did a fabulous job. And circling back to your asking me about memories of seeing the film for the first time, may not have memories of the first time, but I did at one of the reunions watch it with the surviving Raiders, which was kind of a special thing to be sitting in the audience with Doolittle Raiders watching the film. I can I can't even imagine what that must have been like. That's and of course they all loved it as I've heard. They did. Now initially there was um a little bit of pushback because these guys didn't they felt like they were doing their job. Every single one of them said we were just doing our job. And as I said to them one time, well that's quite a thing if your job is saving the world. And uh there was a little bit of pushback because they had all agreed that they were not going to try and glorify what they did and write books about it. But because Lawson lost his leg, he felt that his earning days were over. And so he wrote the book in the hope that he could make some money to support his family. I think that any pushback that came out of it uh, at the time was long gone because it was such a good film and did really represent the raid in a pretty historically accurate light. Obviously it was Hollywoodized, but it was very respectfully done and uh, no one had any problems with it when I saw it with the Raiders. Well, earlier today we were talking about the logistics involved in creating the carrier deck of the Hornet, considering they didn't have a carrier. I guess the Hornet itself wasn't available because it had been sunk uh, in, the, I think, the Battle of Santa Cruz Island a few months later. Yeah. but It I, put up a good yeah. fight, but it, it did sink, and it has been found. They've got photographs of it on the bottom. It, wasn't that part of the Guadalcanal campaign? Uh there were so many there were so many ship battles around in in and around Guadalcanal. I have a feeling it was part of the Solomon Islands. But 
Um, you and I talked about the logistics of putting planes on a, on a on a soundstage deck, but apparently they did have a soundstage at MGM Stage 15, which was large enough to build a large deck. And I guess they got four B-25s inside that soundstage. How the, how the heck they, they got a B-25? I, I have a feeling, and maybe I'm wrong about this, but I have a feeling they took them apart and put them back together on the stage. What do you think? Yeah, I really don't know. I just know it had to be logistically a really big deal. And I cannot imagine that the hearing of people on that soundstage was not damaged for life. Because standing next to a B-25 outside when it starts up and runs, it's incredibly loud. And I can only imagine what it would be like inside a soundstage. I don't know how they managed to find microphones that could record that without blowing up because the ribbon mics uh, of the time were very sensitive. You know, it's a really good question. I think that when in reading about the making of the movie, it seems that they combined obviously the live footage of having some planes with some uh, of the original footage of the actual planes taking off from the Hornet, which of course is archival footage. And then they had some terrific miniatures. I'm wondering, well, you and I've seen the movie many times when they're on deck in the real planes, the engines are running, you see the propellers turning. So there's obviously a lot of noise. I just hope people had caught enough cotton to stuff in their ears because uh, yes, you're right. The noise is incredible. I was sitting in my backyard today and four uh, T6 Texan trainers flew over the house and their little, you know, little single engine prop trainers and were very loud. I often wonder what it must have been like. This wasn't obviously the Doolittle raid, but in Germany, when a thousand B-17s would uh, launch one of those attacks. Can you can you imagine what the sound of a thousand bombers must have sound like? I have to say that it would be something I would not want to hear if I were a German, but as a history buff, I would give my eye teeth to hear that sound. <laughs> well, here's a funny story. In 1970, uh, as the MGM lot was in its final hours, you know, the, the, the main lot, the administrative lot was going to be intact, but they were selling off all the other the properties to turn them into condominiums. And they had uh, the MGM auction, which was a big deal. That, that's the famous auction where they they sold the ruby slippers from the Wizard of Oz and all this stuff. And I got a copy of the catalog. I was, let's see, I was about 18. I was a high school senior. And I was, I was determined to go to this auction because I wanted to bid on the B-25 miniatures that A. Arnold Gillespie built for the movie and they were some of the most detailed miniatures of all time. I was ready to go up to $95, which was all I had in my piggy bank. And unfortunately they ended up selling for about $600, which is nothing compared to what they would be valued today. But that auction oh. was quite an experience for me. I can only imagine that's quite a bit of history right there. Another fun actor who was in the movie who played Thatcher, the um, 
on 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 Van Johnson's plane was Robert Walker. I I always thought Robert Walker was one of the most sympathetic presences in American war films. Earlier, he had been in the movie Bataan. He was a sailor in Bataan opposite Robert Taylor. Uh, but in this, he plays the engineer on the plane and just such a likable guy. And of course, most people don't know Robert Walker from anything but Strangers on a Train, where he plays a dastardly villain. And so well. <laughs> and I think it's because he had such uh, a sympathetic presence that his role on Stranger on the Train, Strangers on a Train, was just so stunning because you just don't expect it from this guy. And mm -hmm. I, I will say he was a perfect choice for Thatcher because Thatcher really was a soft-spoken, very kindly man. I met him several times and I noted how accurate Walker's portrayal of him was. Now, whether Thatcher actually went to the set, I don't know. I know Lawson, of course, was able to go to the set. But I'm not sure if Thatcher was because these guys were all still in the Air Corps at the time. Right, right. And some of them uh, post, um, post Doolittle, after they had come back, some of them were involved in some pretty hair-raising stories, weren't they? Oh, absolutely. Uh, David Jones, who was um, pilot of number five, actually uh, ended up a POW. Several of them ended up as POWs in Germany. They were all transferred out of the Pacific Theater because the Japanese had passed death sentences on any Doolittle Raider if they were caught. So they, they transferred them all over to the European theater and Davy Jones was captured and his exploits uh, became fodder for the character of Steve McQueen in The Great Escape. How ironic is that? Crazy. Oh, absolutely. And I spoke to Davy Jones several times at uh, reunions and one time on the phone when I was working on my screenplay. and. He did not pull any punches. <laughs> he was he was the Patton kind of a character of the group. What 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 was his experience on the raid? Uh pretty much a a fairly normal experience for the raid. Flew over, did his bombing run, and um I believe that crew bailed out, though Having all this stuff memorized is uh, my my head is so crowded. I don't know if I can specifically remember what his uh, what his crew did, but most of them, if they didn't uh, try uh, a belly landing, if they were over land, they had to bail out. Lawson's plane, of course, tried to do a uh, landing on a beach, and I always I, I'm no pilot, I'm no expert. But if you're landing on sand, I just don't know why you would put your wheels down. Because putting the wheels down caused the plane to to really get torn up on landing. I believe it flipped. Have you ever ridden in a B-25? Yes, a couple of times. And what was that experience like? Uh, hard to even compare it to anything. I've been up in B-17s, B-24, uh, but the B-25 is really special. 
it's maybe it's special to me because I know it's the Doolittle plane, but um, it's just an awesome experience. You feel like there's so much power in those two engines, even though the B24 and the B17s have four engines, they're kind of lumbering, if you know what I mean, compared to the agility of the B25. I have a feeling that if uh, the Japanese fighters that were patrolling over Tokyo during the raid had actually got into dogfights with the B-25s, the B-25s, I think, had the ability to outrun them. Isn't that true? Well, uh, as Doolittle's plane was heading off of the island after their bomb run, they had some, they were jumped by fighters. And uh, Doolittle flew the plane straight toward a mountain and at the last minute veered off because it was a, like a peak. So he was able to veer off and then cut around behind the mountain enough ahead of the fighters that the fighters went around the mountain and continued on, not knowing that Doolittle had gone off another direction. And Dick Cole told me that it was a little bit nerve wracking because he knew that Doolittle had said that he would not be taken prisoner. And there they were flying straight toward this peak. Wow. But he was able to dodge out from whatever planes were chasing him. I believe they were zeros. One of the interesting things I heard um, during the filming someone heard there was a big oil fire in Oakland, California. And I guess they scrambled some of the B-25s and they went up to Oakland. And I guess the camera ship filmed them against all this fire coming out of Oakland, smoke and fire, which looked like they had just bombed Japan. I thought that was interesting. Oh, interesting. Was that footage used in the movie? Yeah, yeah. When when the bombers are flying over a big smoky cloud from a fire down below, which looks like part of Doolittle's uh, bombing run, that's actually a fire in the city of Oakland. Interesting. That's a new fact for me. Yeah. I do know that um, the Japanese did not scramble planes right away, and uh, they also didn't start firing flak right away because an air raid practice drill was scheduled for the day and the troops on the ground who were manning the uh, ACAC guns just thought it was uh, part of the drill and the air bases where they had the fighter planes thought it was part of the drill and it took them a little bit of time to figure out it was the real thing. Wow. The raid was very lucky on so many levels uh, to get get to to just just the fact they were able to get over Tokyo. I mean, this is 1942. You know, the, the, you know, planes, uh, the whole idea of flying long distances for a bombing run was all fairly new, especially in the Pacific. Um, it's, it was just an amazing, amazing raid. Now, it, uh, ab- absolutely amazing. Um, 
I, I described it to, I was talking to Gary Sinise about it when I was doing a little uh, tribute for the 70th anniversary of the raid. And I described it as bold and audacious. There you go. There you go. Now, there was a ritual you told me about that at every reunion of the Raiders, they would um, they would obviously do the toast, but there was this bottle of liqueur. Did they drink it or did they save it? What was the story about that bottle of booze? Okay. Um, there, at some point, uh, someone let it be known that Jimmy Doolittle liked Hennessy cognac. And uh, there was a bottle of Hennessy that was with the cups that were donated by the, uh, the goblets that were donated by the city of Tucson that had the names of the 80 Raiders uh, engraved on them, both right side up and upside down. And when a Raider would pass away, one of the other Raiders would turn the cup over, but it would still have the Raiders name right side up on the other side because it was engraved upside down originally. And uh, when they did do the, the toasts, it was always with Hennessy Cognac. And the original bottle of Hennessy was stored with the goblets at the Air Force Academy, I believe in Colorado. And some cadets one night broke into the display case and stole the bottle and drank it. And uh, the head of the academy got a hold of Jimmy Doolittle and said, what should we do with these cadets? And he said, nothing, because if I were a cadet, I would have probably done the same thing. <laughs> but they did replace it with a new bottle of Hennessy, I'm sure. Yes. And it was an 1896 bottle of Hennessy from Doolittle's birth year. And uh, they do still have 1896 Hennessy because Hennessy has huge vaults with um, different vintages of cognac stored in barrels. And when they replaced it, they put in 1896 Hennessy in the bottle. And for the final toast, they also used 1896 Hennessy. So I actually got to talk to Dick Cole right after what they, it was the final public toast. They had a couple of toasts in private just with Thatcher and um, Cole, but were, uh, were they, uh, Steve, were they the last two survivors? They were Thatcher and Cole, uh, Thatcher being the youngest man on the raid and Cole being one of the older ones, but certainly not the oldest, but uh, Dick Cole, actually attended Thatcher's funeral when he was a hundred years old and uh, Thatcher was six years younger. So he passed at 94, but I was in the Raiders guest lounge after this public toast. And I asked Dick Cole, I got this on video and I, I said, how was the cognac? And he said it was very smooth, but they were kind of stingy with it. <laughs> it is ironic that the last two survivors of the 80 men on the raid were from the same plane. No, they weren't. Oh, that's right. Dick no, I'm Cole sorry. Was, oh, you're Dick right. Cole was plane number one. That's right. I was thinking that he was uh, the co-pilot in, uh, in Lawson's plane. No, you're right. They were separate. Absolutely. Yeah. Dick Cole was uh, Jimmy Doolittle's co-pilot. And he, as a 
as a teenager, had kept a scrapbook of Jimmy Doolittle's exploits. And he was a huge fan of Jimmy Doolittle. And by a quirk of fate, he ended up being uh, Doolittle's co-pilot. How long did Doolittle live? Uh, He lived, I believe, to be 96. But he he passed away... um, I think he was he was born in the 1890s and he passed away before I started going to the reunions. But I I never heard anything but reverence for the man. Sure, sure. Well, it's amazing of all the planes of World War Two, I think there are probably. A lot more B-25s still flying than a lot of the other World War Two planes. There are quite a few that are still flying, enough so that when they had Doolittle reunions, they could usually get, without too much trouble, get 16 planes, especially when they did the reunions at the Air Force uh, Museum in Dayton, and they would do flyovers. And um, at uh, one of the reunions, I think... uh, one of the men had passed away recently and they flew a B-25 missing man formation over the Memorial Gardens at the Air Force Museum. And that was a very moving thing to see. Now, it's just, there's just something about those World War II aircraft that I just have always had a reverence for. When I'm sitting in my backyard and I hear some of those Van Nuys Airport B-17s flying over, the ones that always land there for the the rides or the B-24s, mm-hmm. just amazing. Oh, it's incredible. And uh, I would highly recommend if you haven't flown on one of them to do so. Yeah, no, I, I think it would be definitely a, a, a tremendous experience, especially trying to picture yourself as a, uh, a waste gunner in a B-17. Uh, you know, the, we're, we're about to be uh treated with a big mini series coming up uh on Apple called Masters of the Air. Have you heard about this? I have. It's uh, a very exciting thing. Although I I keep my fingers crossed that I'm not going to see anybody coming out with a, a doolittle um mini series or film because every time I get close to having uh, someone really jump on my screenplay, somebody does a 10 minute tagged on ending to their movie with the Doolittle raid in it. And I have to hear from production executives or, or development executives. It's already been done. Oh God. And of course we're talking about uh, Michael Bay's Pearl Harbor movie, that, that kissy faced uh, goofball movie. That's more about the darn love triangle than the actual battle. I, and <laughs> you know, it's uh, enough said about Michael Bay. So let me ask uh, you a question. Well, I just, yeah. I, I just wanted to throw in that one of my favorite movie reviews of all time was Roger Ebert's review of Pearl Harbor, which began with something like Pearl Harbor is a movie about how on December 7th, 1941, the forces of the Imperial Japanese Navy staged a surprise attack on an American love triangle. <laughs> You know, it's uh, John Schwartzman is a good friend of mine. I, I worked with him back in the in the '90s or the '80s, and he was the cinematographer on Pearl Harbor. He worked on several Michael Bay movies, and he said that Michael Bay was not interested in history. He was interested in getting a cool shot, 
And there are a lot of cool shots in Pearl Harbor during the attack, but there was not really a history. I mean, obviously, Torah, 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 way back in 1970 was the historical treatment of the Pearl Harbor attack, although I'm not a big fan of that movie. I thought it got a bit bland. But um, there's still room for a Doolittle movie or a miniseries, and hopefully someday somebody will take a look at your script and, and get it moving. I hope so, because it's the only screenplay about the raid that was written in cooperation with the Raiders, based on the books that were written by Carol Glines, who was an honorary Raider and um, was the official historian of the Doolittle Raiders. So there's the problem I keep running into is everyone says, well, we don't need a history lesson. Well, what you don't need is a love story in one of the most fascinating uh, stories of a raid in all of history. And the only thing I did was to put it into a screenplay form. The men who flew the mission wrote it. Yeah, right. Of course. Of course. And if you're out there right now watching this podcast and you know of people who have film financing, this is one hell of a movie that Steve wrote and it could use some financing. If you want to reach out to me, uh, my email is Steve, S-T-E-V-E-J-A-Y Rubin, R-U-B-I-N at Gmail. I always welcome conversation from our listeners and our viewers. Well, this has been great, Steve. Uh, I, I really appreciate you coming on to talk about the raid and uh, the movie and part of our history. You've been listening to or you've been watching. Um, a lot of you have, don't get the YouTube yet. We're still working on getting our YouTube presence. So you're probably listening to this podcast. This is Stephen J. Rubin, Saturday Night, the Movies. Our producer is Ben Shrewsbury. I'm your host, Steve Rubin. And you've been listening to Steve Bonds who's had a, a really a, a lot of fun in Hollywood in various capacities, not only as a writer, but working with props. And did you ever work on a World War II movie, Steve? Uh, well, believe it or not, uh, a couple of the cars in Pearl Harbor are mine. Aha! <laughs> <laughs> so I, I plead guilty to being willing to take their money. <laughs> and I, I also worked on Flags of Our Fathers. Ah, and, and I, I, there's I another whole. Go ahead. There's another whole story there because my dad was intimately involved in getting the Iwo Jima monument built in Arlington. Oh wow, that is that is a very memorable monument. Um, the only time I got close, well, I made a World War II movie, as the as the viewers know, I did Silent Night for the Hallmark Channel in uh 2002 which was based on the actual incident where american and german combat troops met in a cabin in the ardennes on christmas eve 1944 and thanks to a a german woman who kept the truce for 12 hours they broke bread and sang songs and left as friends in the morning true story so that was that was a great experience for me but i on the aviation side, it wasn't a World War II movie, but Showtime did a movie about the Roswell flying saucer crash, the purported flying saucer crash, which we filmed out at Van Nuys Airport. And since it's supposed to be 1947, we had um, lovely Fifi. The uh, B-29 was parked on the airstrip next to a couple of B-51s. And I got a chance to crawl around in a B-29, which, of course, was a 
a lot bigger than a B-25. Way bigger. A, um, a, a gal I went to high school with is married to one of the crew of Fifi. Oh, really? Yes. And um, I, I keep hoping that I'll, I'll get my uh, old high school pal discount on a flight, <laughs> but not so far. Well, that, that's interesting, Steve. So good talking to you, man, and, and thanks for the conversation. Well, thank you for having me.